Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. I'm really delighted that Pat Greer, the former CEO of Ramsey Healthcare, is one of our first interviewees on the Caring CEO podcast. You'll hear how Pat arrived in Australia with just five suitcases, his wife and uh, three boys, and $2,000 in the bank to how he grew from that start to be the CEO of Ramsey Healthcare. During the period that he was with Ramsey, their number of hospitals went from just over 10 to up to over 100. And he really believes that that happened through a philosophy of leading from behind and explains what that is. He didn't see himself as a big rah-rah CEO, but just uh, really striving to understand the 80% good in all employees and all direct reports and focusing on that to help the person to go outside their comfort zone and grow as an individual. He was also very successful at changing private hospital policy with the government and, and describes how he went about doing that. He was very proud of his time at Ramsey Healthcare in building this incredible culture and then being able to hand it over to his then Chief Operating Officer, Chris Rex, who took it again to another level. Finally, he really believes in the benefit, the advantages of obstacles because he was able to really reflect and identify that obstacles led to him being more creative, to his team being more creative and to the organisation being more innovative as well. And finally, he does talk about his one regret. And uh, this is a salient message, I think, for anyone who aspires to senior leadership. And he outlines what he would do differently. Some great words of wisdom and gems from Pat. And uh, I really hope you enjoyed this discussion. I'm delighted today to welcome Pat Greer. Pat is the former CEO and board director of Ramsey Healthcare. When Pat joined Ramses in 1987, it had 12 hospitals and an annual turnover of 300 million and was in financial difficulties. When he left in 2017, it had 100 hospitals, 3 billion in turnover, 35,000 staff, and approximately 300 million in annual profit. And even though Ramsey had stellar financial growth, they also had half the injury rate of comparable healthcare organizations. Since stepping down from Ramsey's, Pat has served as a non-executive director on a number of boards. It's very, very fitting that Pat is one of our first interviewees because I learned a lot about the value of having a culture of care from Pat and the team. I first worked with Pat in 1987 when I helped to recruit Chris Rex as his chief operating officer. And Chris led became the CEO when Pat stepped down. Pat is certainly a leader who has embraced a culture of care and a culture of growth. Welcome, Pat. It's really great to have you on the show. Thank you, Graham. Well, I'm looking forward to this interview because, as you say, we've been back, we go back many years, and it's quite nice looking back at how things started and what 
came together, and I, you've mentioned Chris Rex. That was a great appointment. Thank you very much. And that is through Jeff Morgan and you and so on. But secondly, you were instrumental in helping me sell the Ramsey Way to our staff, particularly our general staff as opposed to our executives. So we go back a long way, Graham. So I look forward to this interview. Yes, thanks, Pat. We do know each other pretty well. And I know you had a an unconventional background for certainly someone in who is in Australia now and has been very successful. Your childhood was in Zimbabwe or was formerly known as Rhodesia. What was it like growing up there? Well, I've got to say my, my memories of Rhodesia, because when we left it was still it was Rhodesia becoming Zimbabwe, are in general terms happy. I've got to say it was a great country to be growing up in. These days you don't mention this, but it was colonial Africa. It was a very prosperous country, unlike South Africa to a large extent. We got on very well with the blacks, the whites, and we mingled very well. And it was a very prosperous country. And I look back to my childhood in general terms, and I can go into some of the negatives of it, which actually made a difference to the way I, I developed myself. But in general terms, it was a happy time. I've got to say, Rhodesia was a great country to be brought up in. And I also recall that you had, you know, a challenging family environment. Do you want to just explain a bit more about that? Yes, I don't harp on it, but I, I do know that my upbringing, as we put it, uh, did make a, has made a big difference to how I developed and how I have developed over the years. Some people are very fortunate and just say, well, I just had a great childhood, great family, and thank you very much, and, and uh, I've moved on. But in my case, it had a couple of fundamental emphasis, emphasis on me. One of it was I was really an only child in a breakup marriage. I remember the marriage breaking up. It was all sad and all very dramatic. And my mother was left on her own single mum. And I did have a, a very draconian grandmother who was there for a while. But my sister was nine years older than me and my brother was 11. And they left soon after the breakup. And so, so I grew up as a single, in a single family. My mother was very distraught about the breakup and never got over it. Had to work bloody hard. And so my thoughts of those days of those days is that it was a lonely time. She went off to work early, came back exhausted. The second thing is not having brothers and sisters, etc. I do remember not only the loneliness, but also we just didn't have any money. And you know, a lot of people can say that. Everybody can say that. Not everybody, a lot of people. But I do remember at the beginning of the month getting meat and mince and oh fantastic. I knew that it was, you know, payday because we got a whole lot of things. By the end of the month, it was basically just the basics, the basics, rice and things. And so those two things, not having any, being a, a, quite a lonely person at home, and I don't ever remember my mother saying she loved me. I was actually quite good at sports. She never once came to my sport and so on. So this is not so much woe as me, but more it made a big difference to, to me later on. And I turned to my friendships, my, my friends. I stayed with other people a lot in those days. And it was the friendships that actually made me feel good about life in those days. And that's why I think I have grown up and wanted people around me and enjoyed people and made a big thing of my life, uh, working with people, motivating people. And that word people comes the whole time to my mind. 
And I think that was because of my loneliness at the time, the lack of love and so on and so on. So I've got to actually almost funny enough turn around and say it wasn't the greatest as far as family and everything is concerned, but it helped make me for the rest of my life. Yeah, great insight and point there. You got married, you had three children, and then you made a decision. Can you just explain about what led you to leave Rhodesia and what it was like arriving in Sydney Airport with your wife, three kids, and five suitcases? Well, I can tell you it was pretty daunting. Take a step back after school and so on, I realised that I had to create my own future and that I liked the idea of business, I really did, and I liked the idea of being a leader and so on, but yeah, I had to make myself a better person and so on. So I did a whole lot of courses, et cetera, et cetera. I also was concerned about the future of, of Rhodesia at the time, and I thought, well, if I am one day going to leave this country, I better take some courses and so on. So having got married and starting to have children and so on, I also spent a lot of time doing every course that I could find. But nevertheless, I didn't really want to leave. And when it looked like we were going to get independence and so on, I said, this is fantastic. Great country now. We're going to have money pouring in. And the firm I worked for said, oh, this guy's got a bit of future. So let's see if we can offer him a good job to stay and all that thing. Well, i got to say, my wife, Deline, had a, she's had a lot of influence on me on various directions <laughs> that I've taken. And she saw Mugabe come in and took one look at him and said, well, this guy boy, let's get out, that you can't trust him and so on. And a few things happened. We'd gone through a war, a terrorist war. We called it terrorist. They called it freedom war, and people would, had died around us. My wife was actually getting prepared to go out one night, and she heard on the radio that her cousin had been killed in the war you know, on his farm, and wow. that's it. We've got to get out of here. And then when Mugabe came in, she took one look at him and said, we're going. I said, well, hey, we're just about to go. We're about to grow. We're about to... Well, anyway... She was right. We left, but you know what? We left with five suitcases, and those days you couldn't take money out. Well, you can't now, but couldn't take money out. We left quite a good house, put in the bank, lost all that. And we came to Australia with no job. A CV, I've got to say, was a bit expanded, a good way of putting it. I went to my boss when I was leaving and said, there's my CV. Could you just sign it? And he looked, wow. This, is this you? Are you? <laughs> I said, I can do it. I can do it. I promise I can. Anyway, no job, CV. And I still remember arriving with three children, one in nappies, sitting under the harbour bridge, the lawn under the harbour bridge in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, only, we only knew one person in Sydney and about two people in the whole of Australia. And there my wife was saying, isn't this fantastic? We're going to make it here. And I said, what, on $2,000? You've got to be joking. That's how we started. It was, it was scary. It was scary. No job, $2,000, three children, one in nappies, but a very, very supportive wife and saying, come on, we're going to make it in Australia. How did you get your first job? I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting one. As I say, we, didn't, we went to a, a dinner with a friend of ours. We only had one friend here. And I met up with a guy called Bill Potter. And he listened to our story, and I think he was quite taken by what what I've done and so on and so on. And so he said, I don't have a job for you, but I think you'd be best to go and do an analysis, like one of those job analysis type thing. And guess what? From that, uh, he gave me a job. And it was very, it was quite quick, actually. But the hard part about it is that, you know, I had 
promised that I would deliver all sorts of things to get the first job. And I really didn't have all the equipment to do it. But I believed in myself, but it was tough. So there you've got a job that you was really way above you, your ability at that stage or your experience, not ability, experiences. And it was very tough. And I knew if I lost my first job, I was really, really, very really tough. So, boy, you had a home. And then we had to find places to live. And we decided, my wife and I decided we're not going to go out into places that are tough areas to live, so we went, overextended ourselves there, had to find schools for our kids. We, we bought clothing that they had to wear at, to the school that looked like you know, they were from a peasant back. And she couldn't work because he was still in one of us, Tristan was in nappies. So, and this work I got, I gotta say it was, her scenario was that my immediate boss didn't want me. I was put in there because Bill Potter believed in me. And I've got to say, if there's one person that I've got to thank, it's Bill Potter in so many ways of giving my first job. But he also taught me all about building a business, building a culture and building something around people. So that was my first job. And it was bloody tough because it was way out of my ability at that time. But I knew that I had to be successful or else I would, you know, would never give a fight, a fight my way back. So it was a tough, tough, it was a tough time. So what were the main things you learned from Bill Potter? What did you take to your later career from there? Okay, well, he was a charismatic leader and he also saw how important it was bringing people together to energise people. And so as the national sales manager, I was taught how to do that sort of thing through him. And one of the things that he did was run very good conferences, management conferences, and people were brought together and they were made to work together and so on. That hadn't happened before. And he ran award systems. I had a lot to this and said, wow, this is what charismatic leadership is all about. So he taught me how to develop a culture all about people. And it fitted my way as well because, that, as I said earlier on, I learned that if I'm going to be successful, I have to have successful people around me. But I tell you, it was tough times. And I remember my first conference uh, where I had to speak. And I'd never spoken to uh, about a hundred or more people in a conference. And oh, now maybe they helped me with my speech and so on. I made the speech. And my legs were absolutely shaking. In fact, <laughs> the podium was shaking. And so it was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. <laughs> and he came to me after and said, Pat, you haven't done that before, have you? <laughs> no, actually, but I've got to learn to do it better. And I tell you, I learned that very quickly that if you want to be a leader, you've got to be able to publicly speak. And I went to courses. I even had went to a hypnotist that taught me how to speak better and, and get over this fear of speaking. So those were the sort of things that he taught me very early on as far as managing people and managing conferences and producing something, energizing people. Mm. Were there any other significant roles you had before joining Ramsey after that position? Well, I guess there were ups and downs. I, I went to Rickett and Coleman and, uh, and that taught me more about marketing. I went to Revlon and that taught me about must not have a company that has management by fear. Revlon was started by Redson, a very dynamic person, started from nothing, selling lipsticks and so on, and then built up this empire all around the world, and he died and was taken over by accountants. 
a chap called Beaujolais. And overnight, it changed from being very much a product and people organization to a financial organization, bottom line, bottom line. And everything was all about checking figures and so on and so on. So that taught me we must not, I must, when I get to that stage where I can run a company and so on, we must not have management by fear. And the bottom line is not everything. It's how you get there. It's the product. It's the people and all the systems and so on. And then finally, if you do all that right, the bottom line follows. So I think that's what I learned between the early days when I arrived, is the Johnson and so on, that management mafia does not get, it gets good results in a short time, but in the end, it implodes on itself. And, that, and that's why I left Redbox. And how did you hear about the Ramsey position and what led you to decide to pursue it? Well, unfortunately, I met Jeff Morgan, who you know very well, worked for him, uh, quite early on. And he was, I've always thought, wow, isn't it fantastic? Certain people have faith in you and help you <laughs> along the way. And you look back and laugh. Those are the people that have actually made a difference. And he did for me, gave me a faith in myself when times were tough. I had some low ups and downs. And each time I said, well, I'm going to get through this, etc." But he had faith in me. And a couple of times he put me onto jobs and sometimes I didn't even look at them and so on. But then an American company was coming into Australia, hospitals of Corporation, Hospital Corporation of America, and then Hospital Corporation of Australia. And he said, you know, Pat, you've got two things going for you. One is you're into marketing and so on, but you're also a people person. And have you thought of healthcare? And I said, what? You know, what, what? And he said, no, no, no. You, I know you're concerned because you're not a doctor and so on, but that's why I think you do well. And so the private sector was about to open up and he got me into healthcare. And then from there, I got into HCA. And once again, I, I learned a hell of a lot there about management and leadership and all that sort of thing. But I also learned about running hospitals, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. amazing because I didn't know from a, what, a general surgeon to an orthopedic to a urologist or whatever. And in fact, the first hospital I ran, my wife, who was a nurse, Deline, she gave me a list of all the different specialties so that when I saw somebody in the corridor, I didn't say, <laughs> how are the bones today? I could say, well, how's the urinary tract? <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I fell on my feet in healthcare was because it was a combination of management, systems, processes, and people, motivating people. And what they wanted in the private sector, which hadn't happened at, the, at that stage here, was marketing people people, people, not necessarily doctors and clinicians and so on, but people that brought in a visionary, uh, a vision to whatever they did. So I was given a hospital and that was also a pretty tough time as well. <laughs> yeah. And how did you transition from HCA to Ramsey? Well, first of all, going back to HCA, I was given a very tough hospital, where, which was in a very down and out area at that time, Wentworthville. There was actually shootings and things like that. And the boss said to me, Bob Sheridan, if you can make this work, you can make anything work. <laughs> and I've always had a, a saying, well, like, create your own future or businesses create your own future. Don't make excuses for what you've got as, a, as the reason why it's a failure. Find the formula for success. There will be a way out of it or somewhere. In it. And that was a very good example of how you can create your own future. This was 
in an area that had about 10, 15% health insurance. And there, as I said, at that time, there were actually beatings up in the streets, Wentworth Law was not the place to be running a private hospital. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, what can we do to make this a success? And we had three urologists there and <clears throat> said, well, if you're willing to spend a lot of money on urology, we can actually get behind you. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, there's a thing called a lithotripter. And I didn't even know how to spell that, but anyway. <laughs> uh, and they said, this actually blasts kidneys from outside, et cetera, et cetera. won't go into it. And if you put that in, we can actually make this a center where people will come. And I said, wow, it's no good marketing to where there's no health insurance, but let's make ourselves a destiny, a destiny, mm-hmm. a destination. Mm-hmm. So we put in a lithotriptor, thanks to the CEO of the town, Bob Sheraton, he backed me. We put in a lithotriptor, about two and a half million, three million, research people in and all that sort of thing. And we called ourselves and we built a whole new wing and we called ourselves a center of excellence in urology. Now, really, we were the longest, furthest way from being a <laughs> And we said we're getting into research. That meant we were going to have children, patients and children at home. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Perceptions are more important than reality. And turned this hospital into what we call a center of excellence in neurology. We produced brochures and so we might. And suddenly, and by the way, the public sector said, we don't want to spend money on this. This is terrible. Oh, it's a waste of money. So we were the first hospital in Australia to do lithotripsy in neurology. With that came other doctors saying, hey, this place might not be too bad. And we became a destiny, not just something floundering in Wentworth's world. We changed our name to Charles Wentworth because we were heading over the mountains to a big vision ahead. And we got other doctors coming in wanting to work there. And guess what? About two years later, we won the Private Hospital Association's Award for Best Hospital Under 100 Bed. And that was wow. But the, right. the important thing there, Graham, is creating your own future. And yeah. we have to do that. And that was and that philosophy is what I've carried through whatever I've done. How did you then transition to Ramsey? How did that come about? Okay, so basically Chapel Steve Gracie was running Ramsey's, it was not going well, and he realized he needed some good management around him. And because I had a bit of a, na- a name by that stage, he got hold of me and said, this Ramsey is going is going fantastic. It's going to go even better. <laughs> well, he was a great salesman because when I arrived, <laughs> I moved from one to the other. And I actually thought it was time to, maybe in that stage I was moving around too much. But every time I moved, what I thought was for an upward, sometimes it was before they got hold of me and got rid of me, or I kept ahead of them and <laughs> not quite as bad as that. But nevertheless, and I went to Ramsey's, but I didn't realize how bad Ramsey's was. To <laughs> the good news is, I joke about it, was the results took about six weeks to come out. So you had quite a lot of time to look around for another job if they didn't like what you were doing. Anyway, I got there and Steve Gracie left soon after he left a bit of a hole. And I sort of fell into, I was the operations manager with another person as well. And I fell into the management role. And then I realized how tough things were that I didn't realize and so on. And so, on. so we had to then start to rebuild Ramsey's. And I've always said it's the tough times that make you. So here we've got a, a hospital that, a group that had only had about 10 or 12 hospitals, I think, at the time, mainly all psych, not all that well run, not making much money. Paul Ramsey and Michael Siddle had floated the company Several years before, uh, they got 50 cents. <laughs> the share price got down to six cents. And basically, I think it was the banks who come and said, we've got to sort this out. Or else you're going to go under. 
And that was about where I, when I took over. And they brought in a consulting firm called Gresham. You might know them. Very good. And Paul was basically, his credit card was <laughs> tore, torn up. And Michael and, and Paul were told to get out of management. And I was brought in. And I was quite lucky to be at the right place at the right time where everybody was behind me and my team in, in succeeding. And the basics of Ramsey's was very good. What we did have, we, you know, we didn't have any money. We were float, we were moving floats around all over the place, trying to survive as far as money was concerned. But the one thing we did have, Graham, which was interesting, was generally very good people. We were psychiatric mainly, I think eight or nine of our hospitals, and they had very good people, but nothing much else. Even the facilities, most of them weren't all that good and so on. So we were starting from ground zero to turn a company around. And we didn't have much but we did have some very good people. So that was why we had no alternative but to start to say, well, what are we going to do? We've got good people. Let's turn this around based upon building a culture. And how did you decide on your priorities? You know, you found out that it wasn't in great shape. How did you work out what your priorities were, Pat? I remember, once again, learning from Bill Potter, we got a conference together very early on. And in that conference were some key doctors, all the executive, the board. The board wasn't a formulated board. It was Paul and Marcel and a few others and so on. And, uh, and financial advisors and so on. And we ran this conference saying, how do we get out of here? Where are we going? Where's our vision? And we started on the Friday and it was all about building this new business and so on. Now, the interesting thing is we obviously said, well, we're going to have to raise money here. We're going to have to do this. Our quality is not. And all, all those different things at the set. Then the last session was, all right, let's have a vision for the company. We, we now have the, the different things we have to fix up. And I always remember everybody went away, came back, and we thrashed out. And you know, the vision we came up with, which was amazing, and this is, this is quite a lesson in itself. The, the vision was one day, and don't forget, we were, most people thought we were going out. One day, Ramsey Healthcare will be recognized, and the word is recognized, not us, but recognized as the best hospital operators in Australia. Now, here's a group of only about 12 hospitals struggling. Most probably they're going to go under, the banks did, and all that. Three. But that was our vision, to recognize, be one day recognized as the best hospital operators in Australia. And that actually set the whole scene from then onwards. Detectives mm-hmm. and so on. It raised us from thinking, oh, let's survive, to how do we do that? And that's a long-term vision. And that was our first thing. And then later on, we started to say, okay, how do we energize our people into a, a cohesive team, not giving up and so on and so on. So that was the idea started on how do we build a culture. We didn't have a lot of money. We couldn't just suddenly spend a lot of money on fixing up and all that. Thing. And that's when we started to talk more and more about building a and formalizing. That's important. You can, everybody thought, oh, I've got to have a good culture. And then suddenly it all falls apart because there isn't any substance to it. So we formalized it at another conference, believe it or not, and this time it was Ayers Rock. And we came up with the idea of calling it the Ramsey Way. I was very fortunate that the owner of the company was Paul Ramsey. He was a fantastic guy to work for, but very much the spiritual leader that you could actually get behind and say, trust him, trust his name and all that sort of thing. So we called it the Ramsey Way, which was embedded everything into what and we came up with a whole what is Ramsey way and so on and then later on there was a whole process I started to say well let's have some principles on how do we 
develop the Ramsey way. And I've always said it's no good just having a plaque up on the wall if nobody believes in it. So we started with principles. It started to take off this Ramsey way. We came up with a saying, people caring for people. And then we got people like, fantastic people like Graham Cowan <laughs> to help us sell the Ramsey way. <laughs> because we didn't want it to be just from the top down. We wanted the bottom up embedded from the, and you did that whole program on what do you want out of Ramsey? What do you believe in Ramsey? And all that sort of thing. I must say that was just, it was an amazing experience, you know, as you mentioned, the leadership team, the CEOs, directors of nursing, finance people, they came up with the first draft. And then I think I went to about 15 different focus groups that hospitals. And, you know, we'd ask people what they thought that Ramsey Way was and then show what had been revealed by management and was tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. But it was one of the things that I always remember was how many anecdotes people mentioned about Paul Ramsey. And it yeah. didn't, didn't matter whether they were a, you know, a gardener or a receptionist or the CEO, they just really talked to him as being incredibly warm, incredibly present. And I can see why you would mention him as like the spiritual leader because it was, it was, there was real reverence in, in his interaction with people. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was interesting because he and Michael Siddle had run the company for 20 odd years and really it was just about going under. Mm-hmm. But he never lost that glow of being a very special person. And by getting in good management around him, it meant that his legacy was going to be made. So, yeah, I was very fortunate having because it allowed me to do the same sort of leadership style as Paul Ramsey, but I've managed to put it into actual practice as a management process and so on. So, but it was great working with him. What were the main things you learned from him? Well, I guess it was uh, his ability to make everybody he spoke to special. Even though he didn't know the name, he'd say, how are you? Oh, that's great to see you again. And then he'd say, well, what's your person's name? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was it. And also, live with adversity and say, well, let's do our very best. And if we can't do anything more than what we've got, let's bloody make the best of it. And there were a couple of times when that happened. When And, and also, because for, for me, it was great because he completely trusted me in what I was doing, mm-hmm. even though I was a soft type of leader. It come to my leadership style just now, but because that's what you asked me to talk about. But, you know, he could have been, hey, things are bloody terrible. What are you bloody doing? About? Well, I don't think it's good. I'll find something. Never, ever like that. Mm-hmm. He would be, how are we going to fix this? I, I remember being at a conference once and Chris Rex and I put together the, the future. It didn't look good. We had A, B and C. And A was we're going to lose about five million. B was we're going to lose fifteen, and and C was more like thirty or something. And we put the scenarios together because we were going to lose a major contract with DBA and all that sort of thing. And Chris Wake was very good at this sort of thing. He put together the scenarios with different names. Mariah Heat, which was the worst, and and, <laughs> and Merlin was the best because that was just. The, Absolute bullshit. We were never going to see and so on. So, so we put it to Paul and had the board around. And he said, Oh, come on. There's got to be. Uh, what do you think is the likely of the A, B? And said, Well, more than likely the B, but it could be C, but definitely not Merlin. Hey, you've got to be joking. Anyway, and he said, Come on. And he pushed us. And then he said, Okay, if you believe that if, and you think we can get to at least B, well, that's what it is. Okay. Clapped his hand and said, Let's go and have a drink. <laughs> and there it was. And actually, we did better. Than, and I think we got through it all and so on. And so on. But that's 
the sort of relationship that you need with, well, that you hope to get with your owner, your leader, whatever it is. So it was great. It was a pleasure working with him. And you obviously formed a very, very good partnership with Paul. What do you think he learned from you? Well, I think he handed over the whole running of the place to me. And I think he learned to trust people. And he didn't have to be a minutia. He could, if he believed in you, he trusted you. Mm-hmm. And so I think he, two things, he, he knew that he did not have management on, hands-on ability. He didn't know anything about processes and systems and quality improvement and all those different things that I brought in. And so he learned that, hey, you need two things. You can have a vision, you can have behind people and so on, but you've also got to have the ability to do it. Mm. And that's what I brought to him. Mm. And then, of course, my style was very similar. My style was, I'm not a Genghis Khan and lead the way. And if we, oh, Come on, follow me. I build good people around me. I build good systems. And then I energize them so that they go out and, and do it. So I learned from him that, well, I was already doing that sort of thing. But I think he gave me a lot of trust that I, I would not let him down. Excellent. And how did you go about building a strong team, Pat? Your, your direct reports, how did you go about putting that, a strong team together? Okay, so that is very important. If you're my type of leadership, and as I said earlier on, I grew up feeling that if I'm going to be successful, I've got to have good people around me. I'm not going to be a Genghis Khan. I've got to find ways of energizing people. And so it's, I always say things don't just happen. They are made to happen. There has to be a process. And first of all, you, you yourself have to have a belief as to where the organization's going. You can't relinquish the responsibility of being the leader. So you've got to have a vision. You've got to have an idea of what can happen. And by the way, it's a formula for business. I call it a formula. Find the formula and so on. Now, that sometimes happens with the people or it happens within you or whatever. But you've got to lead that part of it you know, so that people can latch on to what you believe in and so on. So strategy and all that comes into it. But secondly, from my point of view, it's then very important to build people around you. And that becomes more and more important these days where business complexity is getting more and more specialization. But then the big thing is to have a whole lot of processes that make it happen. That, For instance, a few principles that I've worked on. Build a we organization. And these come back to the Ramsey principles as well. Build a we organization. I always talk about we, 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 because it's all about energizing people. If people do a lot of work and then you take away what they've done, you de-energize this. And so quite often two and two equals five if you energize them. But if you de-energize it, two and two equals one, it comes back very quickly. So you've got to think of how you talk to people, how you energize them and make them feel good. And I remember once saying to a manager, look, you talk about I, I, I the whole time. Has nobody around you actually helped you? Oh, yeah, but it was me that did. I said, no, no, no. Every time you talk about I, you are diminishing what they have done. Talk about we, we, we. In the end, that guy had to go. He, I didn't fire him. He just realized he was out of, out of kilter. So... A we organization is very important, promoting people and rewarding them. I'll give you a good example. And, and you've got to put your ego in your pocket and 
praise people when sometimes it's your idea, but you've turned it around. Uh, another example is we went up to a hospital, we are doing badly, a, a, a woman was working there, see her, and I believed in her, and I knew that she could do it, but she had lost faith in herself and so on. So we went through it all and said, and I knew that I was saying, well, have you thought about this one? Oh, that's great. And you find ways to say, oh, that's been almost turned around with them and so on. And in the end, we had a plan and, uh, and came away. And on purpose, I never once said, now, do you know what you're doing? Or now you see, well, you should know. And then I'd keep into And I, then when it did start to count, I said, well done, well done. Oh, fantastic. Never, ever once mentioned to her that I had anything to do with it because it was her. And guess what? She built on it, built on it. And suddenly she became one of our best, great success. So it's also how you energize people to make them feel good, I call that two and two equals five. When mm -hmm. when you have an organization, things are happening on their own. You're not making them happen. Then you are halfway there to making this very special organization. And then it starts to multiply. And that's when I coined the phrase leading from behind. You are still leading, but it's the way you do it to make people feel they are energized. It's their idea. And boy, it's amazing how they come up with so many things that they didn't even realize they could have. But there's a system, there's a process, and it just doesn't happen on its own. And what is that process? What is that system? How do you, because it's not just you a leader of a, a larger organization growing all the time, you couldn't influence everyone. There was lots of there were CEOs of hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. What were the processes you put in place to make sure that that philosophy, that we philosophy expanded across the greater organization? Well, I don't know how well Zooms will do in the long term, phone calls and so on and so on. I do believe to motivate people, you've got to have a fair amount of one-on-one -on -one relationship or group relationships. So as I said, conferences at Ramsey's was very important. We used to bring them all together and so on, break up and so on. Now people say, oh, we all do it. But it's how you run those conferences where people feel belonging and identity and be a part of it. And then you also build up rituals. For instance, funny enough, at Ramsey, we built up a ritual of American pie, Don McLean. And, and at some stage in the night, we all had to go on the floor and sing Don McLean, American <laughs> pie, and so on. And small things like that build up a camaraderie amongst each other. And it's not centered around you. That's important. It's centered about them doing things and so on. You put them into teamwork. So you're actually looking for how can we get people to work together. And, and by the way, they're very much part also of building the future. In other words, what is our strategy? What is it? And it's got to be flexible because things change. But what is our formula for success? Mm. How do we get there, et cetera? And people start to go along with this. So you start from the top because it always comes from the top. And then slowly you make sure that everybody follows that same special uh, energy, energy that is produced by people being a wee person and so on. And you say, well done to them. And then the people below you do the same thing. And it's amazing how it can happen. Now, what can also happen that if you are saying, well, it's more the product, the outcomes, and systems and so on. And finally, the bottom line is what measures us. I always used to say, well, we have to have a good bottom line to be able to get the money to be able to do all the things we want to do and so on. So, but I always left that to the last. I never made that the first thing. What I do see in organizations, it's quite so early on, the financials become more and more important, more and more important. And the teamwork and the, and the ability to make things happen individually goes. And suddenly, and by the other way, with Ramsey's, I used to say we are a decentralized organization. 
and decentralized even in each organization, in each department and so on. And you, you talk about decentralized. What happens is it becomes centralized and quickly becomes, well, often becomes money being the, the driver of everything, the bottom line, and all that sort of disappears. And it's a real pity. I've seen that happen very often. So you really got to work at it the whole time. But it's amazing the results are, are multiplied, come through with multiplying two and two equals five. And it was extraordinary. You, you did manage to balance financial performance and having this culture of care or the Ramsey way. How did you, you know, manage those two dynamics? Because I imagine at times there'd be some tension between those two things. Very much so. And whether we like it or not, you've taken people's money on the, on the promise that you're going to get a return and so on. But I didn't, a lot of people, CEOs, look at the bottom line, look at the share price every day. I made a point of only looking at it every now and again, every week, two weeks sometimes, and so on, because it's what it is at that time. Mm. I, I emphasized very much on the product and making things happen and so on. But of course, the, the final measurement was, are we making a return on investment and so on? So that did come into it, but it came into it as part of a total rather than the main reason you were there. I really worked hard at not making people feel the reason they come to work is to make money for the for the corporation. The reason they've come is because of the product we've got. And mm. in the case of the hospitals, when I walked around the wards and so on and so on, I never talked about, oh, making money and all that. It was all about how things going, how's the quality, how's how's the patient satisfaction, all that sort of thing. By the way, I introduced quite early on when I was at HCF, a thing called Moments of Truth, because I was always looking for ways of building teamwork. And I don't know if you know Moments of Truth, but it was all about you have a string of, of judgments made by uh, people buying your product, and each one is, is important as the other. And if one of those string of judgments is a negative, it often has a huge negative results on everything. So one bad result of a person's visit to a hospital would have a huge negative on all the good. Mm -hmm. So the good things that people were doing were emphasized and anybody who let the side down was really sort of shown up as letting the side down. And that mm -hmm. was teamwork built amongst themselves. So you always got to look for techniques like that that make a difference. Were there other books as well, Pat, or other people that you saw in action that inspired you to try new things? Well, I go back in the 80s, a chap called Iacocca, um, mm. who was a pretty hard-nosed guy, but I like what he did because he turned businesses around. Mm. And I like the, the, the challenge, the, the thought you go into a place and it's not going well, and you say, well, first of all, what's the problem? What's the formula? How do we change it? And then get the people and the systems and so on. And he did that a few times. So I liked the Icoco book. There was another book called From Good to Great. Mm. I can't remember who made it. Who wrote Jim it. Collins. Jim Collins. Jim Collins. And mm. I love that because it was a bit like the Ramsey story of, yeah, we were good, but how do you take it to the next level? Mm. Uh, and I used that uh, at one of our conferences. Somebody came and spoke on the book and all that sort of thing. So it gave inspiration to the people. So those sort of books, I enjoyed Steve Jobs. I enjoyed his book because, mm. of, because of his creativity, because he's visionary. But he also admitted a lot of mistakes. Mm. It's interesting, at the end of his life, his, his 
biggest mistake was thinking that money is everything, materialism is everything, and a lot of the soft part of life, he underestimated how important that was. In other words, uh, a car, a $3,000 car is just as important as a 30000 or a 100000 later on. So I quite like that story as well. In other words, how much do you really need in life? And so to me, if I had to look back, have I been a success? The, my success is not where the Ramsey's made money and everything. It was the people that I, that, that I helped become something special in their life. Mm-hmm. So those sort of stories. But, you know, you asked me in, in running up to this, is there anybody in particular who'd sit down at a dinner table and so on? Well, Bill, jo- uh, not, uh, Bill Gates would be one. Steve Jobs would be another. The Virgin guy, I think he'd be very interesting. Looking outside the square, John Lennon, to me, would be quite an interesting person yeah. to have a dinner with and, because he'd be very liter- lateral and he, he admitted to a lot of mistakes he made, but you know, that would be different to me rather than just listening to Steve Jobs and so on. But, but those were the sort of books that I used to read a lot of. And if there was a young person who just worked in a team and then was promoted to manager, so their first real management position, what would be your advice to them to, to grow? How, how would you encourage them or guide them to grow themselves and grow, grow their team? I think I would always give advice to the younger people. Big advice would be do what you enjoy doing. Don't set a target of I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that and then have to learn a whole lot of things that you don't like doing. Uh, for instance, I, I've never been a, a heavy accountant. And mm. even though one day maybe running an accounting firm, I know that I'd look back and say, was that what I really want to do? So start off, do what you like doing because that will produce the energy you need to be a success. Then the second thing is create your own future work out what you have to do to be able to be a success. Now, by the way, the word success can vary. In my case, it was because I grew up wanting to be a success. I never wanted to be having mints once a year, once once a month sort of thing. And so I wanted to be a success. In business, I learned that I wanted to be business in business and not other things. And I like marketing and that related to people. And then I went and did a whole lot of things to to augment what I wanted to do. So the second thing I'd say, do you want to do what you really like doing and then arm yourself with everything you can get hold of to, to be able to do that and be happy in doing that, what you're doing. So those yeah. are the things. And if, if there was somebody in my organization, I'd sit down and say, well, where do you want to go? What are you, are you happy with what you're doing? It would be better. Okay, now what would you have to do to get better and not push yourself into areas that you don't want to do, but rather do them because you enjoy doing it. That's when you will be a success. And it's really interesting how Ramsey's evolved. As you said, when you joined them, they were very much psychiatric hospitals. They had a heavy bias there. But they evolved, not just in Australia, but also overseas. How did you make it safe for people to try new things, to take risks? Yes, okay. I think you've got to build up a feeling of you can say what you want to say without being beaten up. One of the things I learned at one of the organizations was management by fear is terrible. And yet there's a lot of organizations that live on management by fear. I would rather hear a suggestion from somebody who genuinely believes that this or she believes it's a great suggestion and it's, a, it's, it's rubbish, than them hold it inside and never say it. 
And so first thing is you, when you manage people and so on, there must not be management by fear. You've got to encourage people to say what they think and learn from what they say, because that's the only way they're going to learn. But if you have management by fear, these people just bottle it up and they never, never really grow. And I've also worked on another theory of 80-20 principle. In everybody, there's 80% goodness if you find it. They might only think themselves at 40, 50% or 70. You can find that 80%. And the way to find it is not to look at the 20% that are negative in people, but look at their positives. And those positives grow and the negatives get lost. And you can always find other people to do the stuff that you can't or they can't do. In other words, you'll find somebody who's very good at the 20% that they are no good at. Let them prosper and do well with what they're good at. A good example of that, I remember a guy came and joined one of our organizations and he said, you know, this management, they beat you up, don't I? I said, yeah. he said, you know what? And I call it the mirror story. I stood in the front of my mirror shaving about a year or so ago. And I was so pleased with myself. I'd just come into the organization. And, oh, I, was, I can't wait to get to work. And so a year later or two years or whatever it was, I looked in the mirror and I said, what happened to that guy? He, mm. He's so unsure of himself. I'm not what I am. What happened? What had happened was management was management by fear, was concentrating on the negatives in him, and they weren't seeing his positives, and all he was seeing is negatives. And so that's not good. So the 80-20 rule, you can always find goodness and whatever you find the goodness, it'll multiply. If you find the badness, it'll multiply. So mm. there's all these techniques that you've got to learn. It just doesn't happen, but they, they work. And, and the greatest thing is to see people flourishing that maybe wouldn't have flourished if they hadn't worked for you. Yeah. When you think over your career, Pat, and you know the various roles, the various companies you work for, what is one thing you feel really proud about, something that you, know, you may not tell other people, but it was just really, really meaningful to you? Yeah, that's a hard one because I was very fortunate and I think I made my, fault, my thing, but nevertheless, to falling into Ramsey at a bad time and so on. And I worked with Paul Ramsey, which was, was fantastic. And, you know, I was given a huge opportunity where I think, and, and things were going really badly at some of the times. And I was just given a lot of opportunity to actually show my worth. But I think if I look back to it, uh, back on, say, Ramsey's and various other things, it was the tough times that made me and made Ramsey's and made it. So if, you, if there's a crisis, grab the crisis and take hold of the leadership in a crisis because that's how you will be remembered. How you manage in a crisis is how you're going to be remembered. So never, as I was saying, never let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> but it's really true. And you will always be remembered how you handled a crisis. So I guess looking back at Ramsey's, there were times, and it was, by the way, there were times when we were going under. And I talk about creating your future. I got very involved in, now as far as I have to look back, and this is more likely the one thing that jumps out, is because I enjoyed the creating the future. And so I got very involved in the politics the private hospitals were really on their knees, and I managed to convince, first of all, Woolridge to put in legislation that all health insurers had to cover psych, because if they had dropped psych, Ramses were going under. Mm. Uh, that was a big plus. And the second thing was, I then convinced him to, and another chap called Russell Snyder, convinced him that the private hospitals as a sector are going under. 
And the way to solve that is to put some sort of flaw under the private sector to prop them up. And even mm. was anti at that stage. Right? But anyway, he came around to seeing it, and we convinced him to bring in the 30% rebate. Mm. And basically how we convinced him was, look, if the private sector goes, you're going to have to look after the whole of the healthcare system, which is bloody expensive, and it'll go like the NHS, which is, you know, as much as everybody likes to say in the UK, it's great. It's not. On the other hand, you build up a partnership with the private sector. It will cost you X amount of rebates, but give a floor to it so that people can afford to have their health insurance and then build up what we call a balanced healthcare systems between public and private. And I guess, I say this trepidation, that partnership between public and private now, and oh, that has cost the government the 30% rebate, but people are paying for their own healthcare, the other 70% and more, has actually produced one of the best healthcare systems in Australia. And there was a time when we were heading like most of the other countries where there's no private or really little, and it was all public. We now have a fantastic healthcare system because of that balanced healthcare system, and I had quite a lot to do with that, and yeah. a lot of other people with it. So I guess if I look back and have a bit of pride, it is me and my, my team, I suppose, at private hospitals, and Russ was not the private health insurance, really created a, a very special healthcare system in Australia. You had very stressful roles. You mentioned that at times it was a bit touch and go. How did you look after your own health during that period? I haven't been very good on that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, and I, I go to a gym because I feel I have to. Um, and then I come away thinking, oh, that was great because I'm now packing up and having a shower again on my way. So I've never been very good at that. And I'll tell you another thing I haven't been very good at is balancing my home care with my work. Mm. I put work always first and so on. And I take my hat off to my wife and to my three boys that they still love me. Well, I think mm. they, they still <laughs> say it. And my wife had to put up with bringing up the family on their own and so on. So if I had to give advice to people, balance your home life with your business life and you become a better person for that as well. I take my hat off to Chris Rex, for instance. He very good, very good operator and then became CEO and so on. Even he, in the end, agreed that he lost control of the, that balance. But he was very good at saying, sorry, I've got to give, spend more time at home, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't balance it well, and I've got to say, if I had to give advice, balance it, because I was very fortunate. My wife's still with me. She has had a hell of a lot of influence on coming here and what jobs to get, and we're, we're going to live in better areas because we will go back to Medesia if we live there and all that sort of thing. And, and I'm just amazed that she's still with me, by the way. By the way, Graham, <laughs> I think in three weeks' time, 50 years of marriage. Well, congratulations. Congratulations. And, uh, but the amount of people that say to my wife, we never thought you would lost that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my usual questions at the end, Pat, is to ask, you know, what advice you'd give your 18-year-old self? And in your case, it probably would be when you were sitting on on the on the lawn overlooking the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, but you've already you've already gone through it now. So if you if you had your time again, and I'm paraphrasing here, you you would have more balance. You would ensure that the that your home life got greater yeah. priority. Yeah, I think that there are two things I learned. One is I would have done that more. 
and I'm just very fortunate that I still got a son, my, my son saying, I love you, dad. And that, I'm just you know, so fortunate when you see so many people, when they get to my stage in life, they look around and they turn to their family and they say, well, you went there and there's a few songs like this. You went there when we wanted you. Why, why should we give you love now? So I've been very fortunate that way. If I have to say what I really learned is in life, it's the tough times that make you. Uh, and as you say, sitting on that lawn, oh, this huge city, and you know, we came from little Stallsbury, Rhodesia, to this and the daunting future, and so on. And you look back, it was the challenge of that those the tough times that actually make you. So um, yeah, don't let the tough times and the crisis get you down. It's the turn it around to being a positive, and those are the things, those are the times that make you. But yeah, my balance, I would do that better. And advice, we're all going to have tough. And by the way, if you don't have tough times, that means you're more likely too much in a comfort zone and you'll never really meet your full potential. Thanks very much, Pat. It's been a pleasure talking with you and just hearing about your journey arriving in Australia like many migrants and, and really making a huge impact in Australia. And I think you should be very proud of that. So thank you very much for joining the Caring CEO podcast. I think there's lots of lessons and insights for managers and leaders out there to take away. So real pleasure talking to Pat. Thank you, Greg. I just want to say one more thing. I have been very lucky to be in Australia, most of my life in Australia now, and being an Australian. It's a great country and we all should recognise that. But Graham, thank you for the interview. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.